Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Have you found the 19th chapter of John? It says in verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled, filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So we've been talking for the last uh, couple of weeks at least on uh, this subject of it is finished and we, we raised the question, well, exactly what was finished? And like I explained in theological circles, you know, people who like to debate these things, there has been a lot of discussion and a lot of debate over the years and I suppose over the centuries as to what exactly Jesus re was referring to when he said it is finished. Well, if you go back and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as John's gospel together, you'll know that when Jesus was on the cross at uh, nine o'clock in the, uh, or at, at noontime rather, at noon, at noon, the Bible says that darkness fell upon the whole land. And this darkness lasted from noon until three, and it was actually three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said these words, he said, it is finished. And when he said those words and he died, the Bible says that the veil of the temple there in Jerusalem was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And uh, we found out that that, that that veil in the temple was four inches thick and no earthly human, no person could have torn that in two. Some unseen hand 40 feet up in the air took that curtain and just split it in two. And what that signified was that the old covenant was finished, that God's way of dealing with men had changed and that man's way of approach to God had changed. That man would no longer, or that God would no longer be kept uh, isolated and segregated in an in a, in a earthly holy of holies, but that access to God would now be available through the veil of Jesus' own body. That through him, we can come directly to God, directly into his throne room, directly into the holiest of all through the blood of Jesus, amen? So the old covenant was finished, we know that. We know that as far as what Jesus had been called to do, notice it said that uh, uh, he knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Earlier in the 17th chapter, just before he was arrested, you know, in the, in the garden when he was praying with his disciples, he prayed for the church and he said, Father, I've done everything you sent me to do. So when Jesus said, it is finished, I'm sure he was referring to his part up to that point. Up to that point, everything Jesus could do, everything he had been sent to do, every parable had been taught, Every miracle had been performed. Every blind eye had been opened. 
uh, the, the, the disciples had been gathered. He had instructed them. He had taught them about uh, the kingdom and about the principles of the kingdom. He had taught the multitudes. He had ministered to people. He had, he had commissioned his own disciples, you know, about what was going to happen later when the Holy Spirit would come. He had given all that, that he could give. Up to that point, his work was finished. Now, we know that everything wasn't finished because he hadn't died yet. Isn't that right? He was still alive when he said it was finished. He still had to die. He still had to, uh, to be buried. He still had to be raised from the dead. He still had to ascend uh, on high. So there were other things he had to do. But up to that point, everything in his humiliation, everything in his earthly ministry had been accomplished. So that much was finished. Amen. And, uh, you know, I pointed out that when darkness fell on the, on, over the landscape there, for those three hours, that's the period of time in which Jesus was made sin. That's when he, the sins of this entire world fell upon him. And he was cut off from God's presence. And that's why he cried out, my God, can you imagine we, we don't stop and think about, this was Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, who had always known the presence of the Father, had always been in fellowship. My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? What a pitiful thing to fall from the lips of Jesus. But it happened because he was made sin. And God had to turn his back on his, on his only begotten son, his beloved son. He had to turn his back on him as he was taking on the sins of this world. He was bleeding, the nails in his hands, the spear in his side, the, the, the uh, crown of thorn on his head, his feet. He was bleeding from being uh, a scores. Blood was pouring out of his body to the point that he bled to death on the cross. And his, and his precious blood was being poured out for our sins. And at that point, Jesus had emptied himself of every spiritual resource he had. He had nothing else to offer. Cut off from God's presence, he was completely destitute of any ability to do anything else to accomplish the plan of God. Now Luke's gospel is the only one that records something else Jesus said. It says there that just before he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you put that together, the, the likely uh, 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 scenario or the likely way this, this, this uh, played out he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, Father, it is finished. Now into your hands I commit my spirit. Because Jesus knew at that point he could do nothing to raise himself up. He knew that he was about to go into the regions of the damned. He was fixing to go into the dark place where every man and woman who, who doesn't know God was destined to go. He was going to have to suffer complete rejection, complete uh, isolation, complete separation 
go into that place where no man returned. No one had ever returned from that place before. And Jesus was a man in all ways tempted like we were. And that's what he was facing. And he knew Father God in faith. In faith, I'm committing my spirit to you. I believe you will quicken me, justify me, and raise me from the dead. Glory to God. And so at that point, he had, it was finished. He had done all he could do. But notice, and this is what I pointed out, and I, and I, and I used the last couple of, of Sundays to get to this point. Really, this is where I'm really going with this. When Jesus said, it is finished, I notice it just stands out to me. He didn't say, I am finished. Because really, he was only just getting started. He was finished with what he could do up to that point. But oh, there was so much more he was going to accomplish. Glory to God. So yes, something was finished, but Jesus wasn't finished. And even more good news, you're not finished. Glory to God. He didn't say, well, you're finished. No, he said, he said it is finished. Glory to God. Well, praise the Lord. Like I said, this was only the first phase of our redemption. And Jesus completed that part. But there was so much more. I want you to go with me now to Hebrews, the eighth chapter. And we're gonna actually look at three different passages in Hebrews. And there's one term that I want us to pay close attention to this morning. Hebrews chapter eight, verse number Six, but now he, speaking of Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry. Now, more excellent than the Old Testament priest is what it's referring to. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. I want you to focus on that. We're gonna focus for a few minutes on the word mediator. He says, inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant. That old covenant came to an end, but a new covenant began, praise God. And he is the mediator of that better covenant. And this better covenant has better promises. The old covenant had good promises, but I tell you, the, the new covenant has much better promises, amen? Then go with me over to the ninth chapter and look at verse number 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of, of eternal inheritance. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And then go over to the 12th chapter. And let's look at verse 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Do you realize there are angels all around us today? Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not here. 
They're all around us. If we could just see over into the realm of the spirit right now, this, this, this entire uh, uh, auditorium and these grounds and where the children are and all of the places, there are angels all around. And they accompany you, you everywhere you go. When you're at work, when you're on the highway, we need it on the highway, don't we? Amen. Our angels are always there, praise the Lord. He said, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and here's the verse, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Mediator is one of the great New Testament titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. This word mediator comes from the Greek word mesites. It's spelled M-E-S-I-T-E-S, and I'm guessing on its pronunciation. I'm just, you know, I don't, I don't read or speak Greek, and so I'm just guessing. So if you, if you're, you know, if you speak Greek and I said it wrong, come correct me. I'll take correction. But I'm just going to take a stab at it. I'm just going to say it's pronounced uh, mesites. This Greek word, mesites, translated mediator, uh, derives from another Greek word, which you might be a little more f familiar with, the Greek word or, or uh, suffix meso, which means the middle. So it really means a middleman. That's what the word means. It means middleman. Now, in the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's only used one time there. Remember when Job, those of you who are familiar with the, with the uh, story of Job, when, when he said that, that he was looking for an umpire, he said, I, I, he said I, I'm in trouble because there's no daysman, no umpire that will lay his hand on me and on God. That was the same word, middleman. And Job was saying, there isn't anybody like this that can stand between me and God and bring us together. Well, thank God there is now. Amen. Glory to God. He is the mediator. He is the, uh, uh, mess. how did I say that? Mess, I don't remember, I don't know how I pronounced it. Messetes, yeah, messetes. This word messetes had two primarily uh, uh, usages in the Greek. In other words, it was used two primary ways. Number one, it was used as an arbiter. Now, a mesites was fundamentally a person whose duty it was to bring together two people who were estranged and to wipe out the differences between them. Both in the Greek culture and in Roman law, this idea of an arbiter was very central to, to their cultures. Particularly in Rome, I'm not sure about in Greece, but in Rome, the, the Mesites were people, they, they were called from the common people of, of, of the country. Everyone was, called, was subject to be called upon to serve as a Mesites, sort of like our jury duty. And when someone had a dispute, when someone had in irreconcilable differences, uh, legal differences and uh, so forth that, they, that could not be resolved, when it, went to, when it went to court, 
the government would draw from the people and assign, call on people and assign them the duty of being the, uh, the messities. You could not reject that summons, just like you, you know, ordinarily you can't reject a, a jury duty call you know, in, our, in our country. You were required to serve and it was your duty to bring resolution. A messities was required to bring two people together and to come up with a solution that would reconcile them and, and satisfy both interests. And you had to perform under, under threat of law. You couldn't just say, well, you know, they're irreconcilable and I can't do anything about it. It was your duty to stay at it until you brought resolution. Amen. Well, thank God, Jesus performed that duty for us, didn't he? Amen. We had irreconcilable differences. Now, the other way the word was used, it was used as a sponsor or a guarantor or surety. A man who posted bail for another person's appearance in court was called a messetes. That was the term that was used. It was someone, like I said, who, who would uh, stand in for someone and, uh, and post bond for them if necessary or guarantee them. Especially the word was used of guaranteeing or standing surety for a debt. That was the most... Uh, 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 focused and special used, or, or I could say it this way, it was especially used of, uh, of someone guaranteeing or standing surety for a debt. Mesites was a man who was ready to pay his friend's debt if it was required. And to cancel that debt. Now, how many of you are thinking about Colossians 2.14? Go over there with me. Colossians 2.14. That's exactly what Jesus did. Amen. Colossians 2.14. Verse 14 says, this is Colossians 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. The margin of my Bible where it says handwriting, it says certificate of debt with its requirements. Jesus wiped out the certificate of debt with its handwriting and its requirements against us. You know what the debt was we all had? You know, you know what our debt was, right? Death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Glory to God. So you see that, we all owed that. That's, that's not... That's not just something people say. You owed that debt. In your unsaved condition, not who you are now, of course, but in your lost condition, you deserved spiritual death, separation from God. You deserved hell. I did too. You owed it. Jesus came and took all of that. Glory to God. Paid that debt. He became surety for us. And he canceled it. And when it's canceled, it can't come back. When a debt has been canceled and somebody pays for it, the person that was owed the debt can't come back and say, well, you still owe it. If somebody else pay, if you owed me money, 
and, and Brother Steve came and paid that debt, I couldn't come back to you and ask for the money because right. he paid it. That's right. Glory to God. Our debt is never coming back because Jesus fulfilled it. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Now, in order for, for uh, Amesites to be effective, he must perfectly represent both parties. He can't show favoritism and he can't represent one more than the other. He has to fully represent and, and, and fully state the case and lobby, if you want to put it that way, fight for both sides equally. Well, this, this immediately talks, talks to us about the great mystery of who Christ was, that he was both God and man. Because you see, as, as God, he was able to represent God to man. Jesus fully represented God to us, didn't he? Didn't he fully show us the Father? Didn't he demonstrate the Father? Wasn't he the Father personified everywhere he went? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, just like he had to perfectly represent and does perfectly represent the Father to us, he perfectly exhibits us to the Father. In every situation in life where we have a need, where we fall short, where we need grace, where we need mercy, where we need compassion, Jesus, because he was at, at, at once and at the same time both God and man, he's able to represent fully the Father to us, but at the same time, fully exhibit us to God, fully show man to God. That's why it says in the fourth chapter of Hebrews to come boldly to the throne of grace. Glory to God. Because it says we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with our infirmities, but he was in all manner, in every way tempted just like we were and are yet without sin. See, he can go to the Father in every situation that you face. When you fail, when you miss it, and you come back to God in, in repentance, and even before you do, even before you do, he's always there saying, Father, I know what that was like. Let me tell you what that was like. <clears throat> Jesus experienced every temptation you've ever experienced. <clears throat> he was tempted to, 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 uh, to be impatient with people. He was tempted to be angry with people. He had people lie about him, call him all kinds of names. He was the most misunderstood person in all of humanity. There's never been a person who's ever lived who was so poorly understood as the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no one. He had no one who had really any clue 
who he was, what he was about, where his perspective was coming from. It was completely impossible. The closest was probably John the Baptist. And he cut his head off. And when they cut his head off, Jesus went away for just a little while to get by himself to pray and the people wouldn't leave him alone even in a situation like that where his cousin had been killed. You know, they, they, he comes out and there's a multitude of people hungry and they need healing. And, you know, he didn't say, you know, guys, would you just leave me alone for a few minutes? The only person who had any clue as to who I was has just been murdered. Can you just give me a day? No, the Bible says he came out and saw the multitude and was moved with compassion and fed them and, and, and healed their sick and ministered and taught them. Glory to God. He was tempted. There's nothing, men, women, there's nothing you've ever been tempted with and fallen prey to or fallen into sin in that he hasn't been tempted himself. And he's able, that's what he does is he, is he exhibits our humanity to God in a way that only he can do because though he was tempted in every way like we are, he never failed. He never sinned. He never gave in. Oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. That's our, that's our mediator. That's our surety. Glory to God. Amen. Now, you've heard me talk a lot of times. Go ahead and turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter nine. You've heard me talk many times over the years and refer to the Pauline revelation as it's called in theological circles. And this is simply the revelation that was given to the apostle Paul and uh, it covers what Jesus did from the time he was made sin on the cross until he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. In fact, hold your place in Hebrews and go to, Gal to Galatians, the first chapter of Galatians. Galatians chapter one. Here we have Paul explaining how he received this revelation and how unique it was. <clears throat> Let's start in verse number 11, Galatians 1:11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He's simply saying, I didn't get this from anybody, any, any human here. In other words, I didn't, I didn't get this from any natural man. I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus gave this to him. What Paul preached, wherever where Paul preached, the gospel he preached, he didn't preach what he heard Peter preach, John preach, there's nothing wrong with that. What they preached is, is correct. He preached what Jesus gave him. He said in verse 13, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb 
and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You remember he, was, he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might, had, I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom I did not yield submission for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with me. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. But to those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcision had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter. It goes on to say that they extended the right hand of fellowship to him that he should go to the Gentiles. So we see here that Paul received the revelation that he preached and the gospel that he preached by, by direct revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I pointed out, when you study what he, what he taught and, and wrote in his epistles, the revelation he received is a revelation of what Jesus did from the time he was made sin on the cross until he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So you don't, you don't really get all of that from the gospels. Very little revelation of what Jesus did and accomplished on the cross and in his death, burial, and resurrection and then after that, that's not contained in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have it primarily from what Paul received. There are three phases to the revelation given to Paul. Number one, what God through Christ did for us in his great substitution. Number two, what the Holy Spirit through the word does in us in the new birth. And then firstly, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and then with the infilling with the Holy Spirit. So number two is what the Holy Spirit through the word does in us in the new birth, being receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And number three, what Jesus is doing for us now in his present day ministry at the right hand of the Father. Those are the three primary phases of the Pauline revelation. The high priestly ministry of Christ at the right hand of the Father is one of the rarest and most awe-inspiring features of the Pauline revelation. 
for most Christians, we have most Christians, uh, not just here, but, but anywhere. Most Christians, most sermons, most, the, the most study takes place on what Jesus did for us in his great substitutionary sacrifice. And that's wonderful. We should know those things. But that's, that's most sermons are preached when they're preached about Christ and his redemptive work. They're preached about what Jesus did for us in a substitutionary sacrifice. Very little study is given to what he's doing in us. Most of the church world just doesn't, really doesn't focus on that. And then even far less than that is, is any study given to what he does for us now in his high priestly ministry. Almost nobody studies that. Almost nobody talks about it. The high priestly ministry of Jesus is so important. It is such that if all we had, if I, if I dare say it that way, not, I don't, don't want to sound uh, sacrilegious or anything like that, but if all we had was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, if, if that's all we had, it would be completely, it would be a failure. It would be a failure in our lives if it was not for his ministry for us now as high priest. Because we would not be able to walk in what was done for us. Our flesh would completely overrun us. No Christian would be able to live in victory because our bodies haven't been changed. Our spirits have been reborn, but our, our, our bodies haven't been changed. And friend, you can look at your neighbor if you want to. We all need help. We need help on a daily basis. And if it was not for this high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ for us today and every day, I'm telling you, Christianity would not be what it is. Oh, hallelujah. This, this redemptive work of the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is more revealed in the book of Hebrews than anywhere else in the Bible. There are some other references to it, but the book of Hebrews is the place where it is most revealed. Now, a lot of people uh, who, who study biblical texts, they'll say, well, Paul you know, didn't write the book of Hebrews. Somebody else wrote it. I believe Paul was the author. It's, it, there's, no, there's no authorship uh, claimed. There's no place in the, in the epistle where it says, you know, like he said in his other epistles, I, Paul, write this. That's not there. And so people have said, well, he didn't write it. I believe he did. And, you know, other people can believe what they want to, but when we get to heaven, we'll find out. It really doesn't matter, but the point is, all of his other epistles and the book of Hebrews just fit together like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. It answers all of the questions. And so the book of Hebrews, if you've never really taken the time to, to read the book of Hebrews, not just in your Bible reading plan, just kind of read through, you know, get in your, you know, your two chapters or whatever. Take some time to actually feed on the book of, of, of Hebrews. There's so much in there about what Jesus is doing for us now. 
Oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. His high priestly ministry, we'll, we'll, just, we'll stop here in just a moment, but his high priestly ministry began real quickly on the morning of his resurrection. See, Jesus went to the cross as the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. But when he come out of the tomb that Easter morning, he rose up as the Lord high priest of the new creation. And so you remember the story that the women went to the the sepulcher that morning and Mary Magdalene was weeping. She had gone in and and, and the tomb was empty and she was looking inside and and, uh, there were angels there. And they said, you know, uh, uh, who are you looking for? And she said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for Jesus. You know, if you've, if you've taken him somewhere, she didn't know they were angels. She said, if you've taken him somewhere, tell me. And, and, uh, and about that time, she, she looked and Jesus was standing there. And she thought he was the gardener. And she said, Lord, if you, if, 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 she said, sir, if you've taken my master, tell me what you've done with him. And he spoke to her and said, Mary. And when he did, her eyes were opened and she realized it was the Lord. She realized she was, that Jesus was standing there. She attempted to reach out and grab him and he said, do not touch me. Now that's what the King James says. It says, do not touch me. Now most other translations like the New King James and others, they say, do not cling to me. But actually, literally, what he said was, do not lay a hand on me. The uh, New English translation says, do not touch me. Young's literal translation says, do not, or it says, be not touching me. The Bible in basic English says, do not put your hand on me. He said, don't touch me. He said, go and find the disciples and tell them that I'll meet with them later. Now, the reason he didn't want Mary to touch him is because he had not yet ascended into heaven to offer his blood. We'll we'll read the scripture next week, but I'll just tell you about it now. Jesus had to take his blood as the eternal sacrifice for sin. He had to take that, just like the Old Testament priest had to go into the most holy place and, and take the blood of animals to cleanse the sin Jesus had to go into heaven with his own blood and he could not be contaminated. He was a holy vessel. He could not be defiled. No one could touch him. He had just been raised from the dead. Now, I'm not talking about his ascension just to be seated. That happened 40 days later. But that morning, he was on his way to the heavenly holy of holies to offer his blood as high priest. Later that evening, remember he, he, he came and the disciples were there and he came into the room where they were. They thought they were seeing a ghost. He said, I'm not a ghost. He said, feel my hands and, and, and touch me. He said, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bone. And then he said, give me some food. And he sat down in front of them and ate so they would know that they were looking at a real flesh and bone person, a real physical person. Well, now, why, why, why would he tell Mary, don't touch me, and then later he told them to touch him? Because he was, like I said, he was on his way to the heavenly holiest of all to offer his blood. Glory to God. That morning, he entered into his high priestly ministry, and he's still in it today. He is still our high priest 
in things pertaining to God. We're gonna, we're gonna get into the various aspects and the nuances and what it means, what, our, what his high priestly in, uh, ministry involves. But I'm telling you, it is absolutely critical to our, to our victory and to our success as Christians to know that in every situation, we have a high priest like us. Yes. Glory to God. Now, the Old Testament high priests, because they were natural men, they couldn't continue. They died. And then another high priest would have to be raised up. But Jesus, the Bible, Hebrews says, has an eternal, non-ending, unchangeable priesthood because he lives forever. But he's still one of us. He's still a man. He's still able to go to God and say, now, Father, I know, I know, I started to say Steve, but I won't. Uh, some, somebody else. I, I know so-and-so is being a bonehead. I know Q's not acting right today. I know he don't look, I know he doesn't look real good right now. He doesn't look like a new creation, not acting like one, but I've been where he is. And, and Father, it's not easy. It's not easy being Q, I'm telling you. Because he's been like you. And he's been like you. He's been like me. He's been in the situations where he's where he was pressed, where he was tried, and, and where and where he was tempted. And he felt that temptation. It was real. And he and he could have yielded to it. But every time he he managed to stay true and to stay pure. And because of that, he's able to bring God to us. He's able to bring us to God. Glory to God. Well, hallelujah. I tell you, we have a wonderful Savior. We have a one, and the half has not been told. Glory to God. Let's stand up. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Glory, 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 glory. Father, you're so good to us. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have such a high priest to minister to us, to bring the things that, that, that are of heaven to us, to minister grace and mercy and, and favor and power and victory and life and health and prosperity and blessing. But he's also able to, to, to when we fail, to come before you, Father, on our behalf and to stand in our place as a guarantor of our reconciliation because he comes by virtue of his blood that he shed. He comes by virtue of the life that he laid down. His work is eternal, Father. It, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's before you forever. So Father, all wrath is turned away. All condemnation is turned away. All judgment is turned away. All we have to do is come in the wonderful name of Jesus. In faith, in him, in his blood, in his name. And there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. We'll never be cast out will never be disqualified if we just stay in faith. Oh, Father, what a, what, a, what a wonderful salvation. How can we neglect such a great salvation? We won't neglect it. 
We won't neglect it, Father. We'll take advantage of it. We'll take advantage of every aspect of our redemption. Not the least of which is the high priestly ministry of Jesus today. Working, standing on our behalf, ministering to us. Father, we thank you. Lord, it just, it just most of us here today, if not everybody, are already saved. We've already made a commitment to Christ. But Lord, if I could, if I could do it again, I'd do it all over again, just in light of what, of what I found out concerning this wonderful ministry of our mediator makes me fall in love with Jesus all over again, makes me more devoted than ever, makes me more determined to ever, than ever to follow closely, faithfully, to give my all, to give my all. There's no sacrifice too great. There's nothing you ask of me that's, that's, that's even, even approaches anything that I would pull back from in light of what he didn't pull back from, in light of what he's done, anything you ask of me, Father, I gladly do. I gladly devote my all. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the peace of God that passes understanding. Thank you for your mercy. All that's ours in Jesus' glory. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.